and we have been walking through First Thessalonians, and we're going to do another installment in that uh, series this morning. I'm going to have Scott come forward, and he's going to be reading. We're going to be in First Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verses 13 to 16 this morning. We'll hear the word of God. First Thessalonians 2, verses 13 through 16. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as did, pardon, as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Mm-hmm. He's joking with me about a note that I've got in my, in my uh, program here. <laughs> Well, last night, uh, I'll tell you what, before I do that, let's pray again. I just want to pray. Lord, we uh, come before you once again, asking you to speak, O Lord, speak to us through your holy word, your precious word. I pray that we would open our hands to what you have to say to us. For Lord, let us not only hear the word, let us seek to put it into to action. Holy Spirit, help us. Come now. Apply the word to our hearts. Help us to be conformed more and more into your likeness and image. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so last night, my, well, I guess it technically wasn't last night. It was night before last when I typed this. Um, it was last night. So night before last, my family had the privilege of having dinner with a pastor who was originally born in Africa and with his family. Another brother from Africa also joined us for uh, supper. I could tell as the night began that our kids were not sure what to make of each other. This gentleman has four kids. We have four kids. From an earthly perspective, we looked pretty different, right? Skin color's different, hair's different, different accents, different perhaps vocabulary and words we use. But as the night went on, something really remarkable happened. All of those outward differences began to fade. We talked about some of them, but they began to fade. And what rose to the surface was all of the things that we have in common. We spoke of our marriages and our children, our trials, our challenges, our joys, our sorrows, and of course we spoke of our Savior. I was truly 
amazed at our common perspective on so many things, even though we come from very different places. It became clear, though we come from different places and though we look different, we are one family, the church of Jesus Christ. This was my experience when I visited China back in 2018 and in Kenya this past summer. It was my experience when I visited Israel in 2007 and spent time with Jewish Christians and Arab Christians as well. We are one church, one holy, Catholic, universal, apostolic church. But what makes us the church? What are some of the distinguishing marks of the church? What makes us one body and makes our gatherings different from any other gathering out there? The name church alone is certainly not what makes us the church, right? It's not the title. Many claim that title. Many say they're of the church. Many take up the name Christian who are not truly a part of the group. In fact, at the time that this letter was written by Paul, the term church or ekklesia in Greek was the commonly used name of the popular governing assembly of free citizens in a Greek city. This was a common term used of other gatherings. Think of something along the lines maybe of our local New England town meeting. Except in Paul's day, uh, when he wrote this letter, these gatherings would often meet in the presence of their city's god or deity and make sacrifices and prayers at these assemblies. And that was called ecclesia, church. The word was a common Greek word used for a gathering of citizens. We see the word ecclesia used in places like Acts 19.32, referring to this kind of assembly. Acts 19.32 says this, Now some cried out one thing and some cried out another. For the assembly, the ecclesia, was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. If you go and read the context in Acts 19, that's not a Christian gathering. In fact, this assembly was rioting against the Christians in Acts 19. But that word assembly is the same word that Paul uses here in our passage and over and over again throughout his letters uh, for church. So what is it that distinguishes these assemblies, these churches from others? What makes us unique? what binds us together and makes us a body. What is it? That's what we're going to look at today in this section of God's Word. Now, before I go into any of that, let me say at first, this is not, uh, not an exhaustive study of this. We could go on and on and on about various things to say about uh, the church. That's not my goal. But I just want to look at a few things that set us apart from other assemblies, other uh, groups that come out of our passage today. So that's what we're going to talk about. Before we get into that, um, 
let's retrace our steps that led us up to this point. I don't want to take it for granted that I know many of you have been here as we, since we started the study, but some of you perhaps have not, and uh, so I want to quickly review. Some of you will recall that last week Paul was taking time to defend his ministry. After being forced out of town by some of the local opposition, people that didn't like his message, um, Paul makes his way down to, to Athens. And Felicia, if you have that map again, I never give her a warning, but she's always so great about just having it ready. Thank you. You're wonderful, Felicia. It's great to have you doing that. I really, I can't tell you uh, the difference you make. Um, so Paul makes his way down to Athens. So he's up here, right? He was there in Troas, gets this vision uh, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us out. And he does that. And he goes into Philippi, and you know that story, or many of you will know that story anyways. He's thrown in jail uh, for talking about Jesus and then escapes and then passes through over here to Thessalonica. There's where Thessalonica is right there. And then um, as we read in Acts 17, he's kicked out of town for speaking of Jesus, goes to Berea, kicked out of town for speaking of Jesus, um, and then down to Athens. And when he's in Athens... Uh, he grows worried about them, and so he sends Timothy uh, to check on them. He feels burdened and concerned because he wasn't there to really see the church be established and growing. He got run out of town, sends Timothy to check on them. And then later on, uh, Timothy is going to meet up with them over in Corinth. So Paul is going to be in Athens for a bit, again, doing what? Speaking of Jesus, right? And... Uh, and then he goes over to Corinth, and he stays in Corinth a while. He's in Corinth, I believe, a year and a half or so. And Timothy reconnects with Paul uh, down in Corinth and shares some of his concerns. And one of the things that, um, that, that Timothy shared with Paul was that there were some concerns about Paul's ministry, uh, most likely stemming from the fact that Paul had to hurry out of town, right? He came and shared some things and gathered up a little following and then and then was run out of town and it was very abrupt and he had not been able to check on them and as Paul's going to say um, in the next section of of first Thessalonians he's going to say Satan hindered us we wanted to we wanted to connect but we were hindered and we were hindered and so no doubt the people in Thessalonica were worried and maybe feeling negatively about Paul's ministry so they had some concerns and Tim uh, brings those to to Paul. So Paul writes to greet them and encourage them and address some of their concerns. Last week we talked about some of that, Paul defending his ministry against some of the things that had come up. Today Paul is going to shift gears again into a mode of giving thanks. We saw in the first couple of weeks this long section of thanksgiving that Paul um, uh, gives right there at the start of, of the letter. This is the second section of thanksgiving in the letters, not an extension of the first one, this is a new one. Yet, in a way, what's being said here is still kind of, sort of, what you might call a defense of his ministry, very much linked to what he was saying last week. Paul is in some ways saying, you are evidence of the authenticity of my ministry. You are evidence of the truth and of the divine origin of the message I brought to you. You are. So he's almost looking at the Thessalonians saying, you guys are raising these concerns about my message, about what I did, but you're the proof, right? You're a part of the proof anyway. Some of the evidence, because the word of God is at work in you even now. Even though I'm not there, the word of God is working 
in you. And even in the midst of suffering and of trials, God is working in you and through you after I'm gone. So this is in some ways connected to what he was saying last week with uh, this defense that he was giving. I think this is partly what he means in verses 19 and 20. We're not going to look at this at length um, today, but take a quick look. If you've got your Bible open there, look down at verse 19 and 20 in that section uh, right below the one we're looking at today. He says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. He's not taking away glory from God there. It's not what he's saying. He's saying we celebrate what God has done in you and through us in you, right? And we rejoice and we feel joy and we glory and we exult and we're happy for what God has done uh, in you. But that's what he's saying, I think, here, right? He's saying you are proof that we were authentic ministers of a divine message. And all of this, no doubt, would have been very encouraging to this small, fledgling little church facing trials and persecution. And that's one of the major reasons Paul writes to this little church in the first place, is to encourage them and strengthen them. One of the ways Paul is going to do that, what we're going to hopefully see today, is by connecting them to the larger body of Christ. Right? This is one of the ways Paul is going to build up and strengthen this little church is by showing that them that they're a part of something larger and bigger. Look at verse 14 with me. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus. He says you became like the ecclesia of God in Christ, the assembly of God in Christ. Paul does this at the start of the letter, too. If you look at verse 1, if you've got your Bible there, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, or Silas, and Timothy, to the church of Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not just a human assembly. They're not just another gathering of people for whatever cause. No. This is an assembly of God the Father and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a different kind of assembly. But what does that mean? Well, the first thing it means, and here's where we're going to get into some of the different things, I think, that set our assembly, our group, apart from just other ordinary human uh, gatherings. And the first thing that it means is that we have heard and embraced the message of the gospel. We've heard and embraced the message of the gospel. The church is an assembly that believes the gospel, okay? Look with me at verse 13. Verse 13, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Paul came to the believers in Thessalonica and declared a message. It was not his message, but God's message. And this is not some incidental detail about the church, okay? This is not like a, just a, a random, interesting little detail or fact about the church. 
This is the message that defines the church. Without this message, the church is nothing. This message gives meaning to everything we do here at our gatherings. Imagine going to an auto mechanic only to discover they no longer fix cars. Or to a restaurant that no longer serves food. A hospital that did not practice medicine or a sugar house that no longer boiled down sap. That is what it would be to go to a church that does not believe and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what we do. This is who we are. Gospel believing and proclaiming people. A lot of the other trappings about church can go. The pews can go. The candles can go. The child care can go. The music can go. The hymnals, the potlucks, the special events, the building, it can all go. But if we forsake the gospel and fail to believe it and proclaim it, we are no longer a church. Our message is one, that Christ Jesus came to save sinners. And he did that by dying on a Roman cross and rising again on the third day. Hallelujah. That's our message. That no sin is too great for his blood to cover. No life is beyond reach. That's the great message we have to proclaim. And if we ever stop believing it and proclaiming it, we are not the church. That's point number one. The second thing we see from this passage that sets the church apart from other groups is that the word of God is still at work within us. The, work, the word of God is at work within the church. We see this right at the end of verse 13 there. Right, It says that uh, they heard the word and they accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. God tells us that the word is not a stagnant thing. It is not a dead thing. Scripture is living and active, as it says in Hebrews 4. Many of you will know that verse, right? The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing right to the very bone and marrow. We are not told here exactly how the word is, is active here, but it's likely that Paul imagines some of what he's already mentioned in the previous uh, chapters. What are some of the things we've seen in the lives of the Thessalonian believers? What have we seen? The believers received the word with joy, right? Right, and with conviction. It came with conviction and they received it with joy. They turned from idols, right? They turned away from their sin. They began sharing the message with others and became an example even to other churches. And it says they were waiting on the Son from heaven who is coming. Right, these are marks, and we talked about those in the first couple of weeks together of, of uh, true faith. No doubt Paul has these things in mind and perhaps others. The Word is working these things in them. As you know, Paul was ousted from town and has not been among the church for some time, as we just uh, reviewed a moment ago. But even in his absence, the word of God has continued its work in them. It's continuing its work in them. No doubt the believers were speaking the word to one another and sharing it with their community. 
This word isn't just something that they thought about once a week on Sunday. Right? They were seeing the world through this word and this truth now. It was the glasses that they wore every day. And they were talking about it with others. Right? It wasn't just something they thought about once a week. It was much, much more. The Bible calls the words of God this. Just a sampling of some of what this message, these words are called in the Bible. It's called bread in Matthew 4, 4. Think about that. This is our food, right? Bread. It's called light in Psalm 119. Right? It guides us along our way. We just sang about that. It's a light to us. It's truth. In John 17, 17, Jesus said, your word is truth. Its worth is greater than thousands of gold and silver pieces, it says in Psalm 119 also. And just go back through Psalm 119, which we've been reading for months now together, just little sections. All the treasures that we have in the word of God. Right, And this word is at work within us. As we said a moment ago, this word is what created and defined their community and ours as well. The ecclesia is a, is a gathering, an assembly that believes and receives the words of God. And here it continues its work in them and in us, even when the leaders are away. How does the word do its work? Well, one way is through meditation. Meditation, pondering it. In the Psalms, we read this. My eyes anticipate the night watches that I may meditate on your word. Right? This person was longing after a time and space where it was quiet and they could think on God's truth and his commands. Meditation is transforming. It's a formative thing. In the New Testament, Paul says this. And actually, I just got a great t-shirt from my sister that has this on it thanks uh, sis if you're watching appreciate that a belated birthday gift it says on it do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your what mind good job excellent romans 12 2 when we meditate and ponder the word and pray through the word it works within us it's continuing its work it's not a dead thing it's not a stagnant thing it works in us. Don't wait for Sunday to meditate upon the Word. Memorize it. Tuck it away in your heart. Read it throughout the week. Ponder it. Wrestle it. Wrestle with it. You don't have to figure it all out, right? Just get it in there. Read it. Let it challenge you. This is the way to deep transformation. So this assembly, this ecclesia is different from other assemblies, not only because it was once a long time ago formed by the word of God, but because that word continues its work today. That's what we see Paul saying here. And it's true of us. That's point number two. A third thing we see from our passage today about the church is that they suffered joyfully for their faith. Suffered joyfully. God's assemblies one expects suffering expect trials and they even receive it with joy and walk through it with joy oh we have so much to learn on this point speaking for myself i grumble so often lord help us look at verse 14 
For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. One of the major points to take away from that verse right there and from what we've seen in 1 Thessalonians so far is that suffering is a part of the package. It's baked into the cake of being a Christian. Why? Why? Well, because the world's going this way and we're going this way. That's hard. No matter how you slice it. Right? The categories of the world, the assumptions of the world, the values of the world are just different. They're man's ideas. They're human ideas and perspectives and thoughts and values, not God's. So swimming against the current is going to be difficult. It's just baked into the cake. Paul says here to the Thessalonians, this is not unique to you. What he's saying to them is, yeah, I know you're hurting, but it's not just your problem, right? It's not just something you're doing, guys. Other churches, too, are going through it, right, to other churches, because we share a common perspective, common spirit, a common way. The churches in Judea also suffered, he says, in this way, at the hands of their own people, the hands of their own people. And this is what we find when we go through the Bible, right? Not long ago, we walked through the book of 1 Peter together. And in that little letter, it frequently mentioned suffering because the believers there were being terribly mistreated. 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's not just you, right? And it's not strange, Peter says. All Christians suffer in some way right and have to face difficulties it's not strange and it's not just you peter's point trials persecutions troubles aren't strange in fact they're normal when you're walking with god in a fallen and broken world it's in the power and grip of the devil what did the thessalonian believers do when they suffered they imitated other churches who had been through the same Right? They modeled four churches, as it said earlier in First Thessalonians 1, said they became a model to other churches, but they were also looking to some for wisdom and guidance. The churches in Jerusalem and in Judea were the first to be established, and they were looked to by other churches for guidance and wisdom. They were now brothers and sisters in Christ. The Thessalonians had joined the family. They were not just ecclesia or assemblies, they were assemblies of God in Christ Jesus, as it says multiple times in the first two chapters of, of Thessalonians. And suffering and persecution, though we don't like to talk about it, though we don't like to acknowledge it, it is a hallmark of following Jesus. Jesus said this. Listen to these words carefully. Think about this. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Luke 6. That's the words of Jesus. I think we have this idea that being a Christian is supposed to, everybody's supposed to like us and we're nice and friendly to, certainly we try to be, right? We don't want to be mean per, per se, but some of the things we have to say are offensive and difficult and countercultural, which no matter how hard you try is going to be perceived as mean and perceived as wrong and perceived as unkind because the very different definition of kindness is different in the world. 
often the way we think of it. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. It's not a good thing to be spoken well of by everyone. Words of Jesus, not my words. Paul said, if you desire to live a godly life in Christ, you will be persecuted. You will be. Not maybe or, you know, if you're unlucky or have a bad day. No, you will be. We've got to come to grips with that. I think the American church especially has been sheltered from a lot of this. Things that are very common in other places are not common here. becoming more common. I've struggled with this teaching a lot. I don't like it. I like to get along with people. I feel like I'm a pretty likable person. Maybe. Maybe most of you would say that. I don't know. Here's some Snickers out there. Who was that? <laughs> oh, they're snickering. Hmm. If you are a faithful believer living out your faith, the scriptures say you won't be liked by some people, right? This is one of the first, one of the maybe clearest marks of the true Christian and a true church even, that it will have enemies, people that don't like it. Instead of running away, the Thessalonians look to other churches that have suffered and modeled them. And what they saw was joy. Isn't that amazing? They saw joy. They saw people who, who saw that suffering for Jesus was an honor, a privilege, and a blessing to suffer for Christ. That God would let me do something great for him, or even something small, but suffer for it. The early church saw that as a blessing. I think we see it as a curse, right? Look back at 1 Thessalonians 1, 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The believers suffered with joy. There's one clear mark that God is among us. It's that. That we can suffer and still give thanks and praise to God. Everywhere you go in the scriptures, you find this. A willingness to lose or give up even everything for the sake of having Jesus. Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. Maybe you've heard this parable before. Which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys what? He buys the field. Says, I can do without all of this other stuff. I can't do without that one thing. And he knew it. And he was okay with it. Willing to let all the things that were unnecessary go to have the one necessary thing. And he joyfully sells it all to have the treasure. That's real living. Let me tell you. I know I struggle with this. I know many of you struggle with this with deep sorrow sometimes and sadness and grief that's hard to shake. Well, some of it, I think, speaking for myself here, is that I'm clinging to the world. Real living is when you know you have the one thing that's most important. I got the one thing. I don't have a lot of other things that I'd like to have, but I got the one thing that I desperately need and can't live without. And I'm going to be okay because I've got that I've got that thing. 
And when you get that, when you get that most precious thing, that treasure, and you know that you have it, and there's nothing you can do to lose it, because it wasn't even dependent on me in the first place. It was a gift, and I've got it, and I can't lose it. When you get that, that's when life begins. And that is precisely what the church of Jesus Christ has. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Right? Hymn of the Reformation. That goods and kindred go. As the church, we should live like we have the treasure. When troubles come, the treasure can't be lost. It's ours. We've got it. It's given to us. And that's the third point. That's the third point. because we've got that treasure we can suffer joyfully right we can lose other things because we've got the one essential thing and now on to our final point the fourth thing i see here in this passage that sets our assemblies uh, this ecclesia apart from others is the reality of grace let me tell you there is no grace outside of the church you won't find it you won't find it. No other faith, no other religion can truly speak of grace. It's not to be found except in the church of Jesus Christ. True, real, deep, abiding grace. Look with me at verses 15 and 16. Who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. This word keeps coming up. Y'all seen this two or three times now in this little letter, this word wrath. It's a bizarre word. It's not an everyday word that we just go around town and use. I'm wrathful to you. To you. You're not, no, we don't use that word. It's a, it's a churchy word. But here again, Paul speaks of God's wrath, God's anger, God's judgment God's righteous anger in this case he speaks of the Jews who prevented him from speaking to the many people especially in the Gentile world about salvation in Christ virtually everywhere Paul went the Jews tried to hinder him finally Paul says that God's wrath has come upon them at last and there's debate about what exactly this means is this referring to the destruction of Jerusalem that was coming in, you know, 30 years after this, because it happened in A.D. 70, the Jerusalem was raised to the ground, destroyed, temple and all that. Is that what it's talking about? Some sort of a prophetic word that judgment's, you know, been pronounced by God and it's coming? Or is it referring to the future return of Christ, his judgment in that? There's something else. There's a, scholars debate these things. I'm not going to try and solve that riddle, but, but what we do know is this. God is the judge of all humanity. All of us will stand one by one by ourselves before Almighty God and receive judgment. R.C. Sproul once said that the human dilemma could be summarized this way. God is holy, we are not. God is righteous, we are not. That's the great problem at the bottom of all other problems is that. Every single one of us deserves God's wrath. 
We've all cast them aside. God is the perfect judge, and all of us have broken his law. If the judge is righteous and good, he must execute judgment. How would you feel? Your precious loved one murdered. All the evidence points to this particular person. You get into the courtroom, and the judge says, Grace, go free. Go ahead. No big deal. You'd be angry. Your head would explode, right? You'd be so mad. That's not justice. That's not good. That's a bad judge. Justice has to be a thing. The judge has to execute justice, and we all deserve it. So how does that work? How do we escape it? Can it be escaped? It cannot be. For God to not judge, to not pour out his wrath upon sinners would mean that God would cease to be God. Like that judge who just let the murderer go free. He would no longer be good, no longer just, no longer righteous. But there were, where there was no way, God made a way. Because God is also merciful. God is also love. God is also gracious and generous and giving. So he made a way where both his justice and his mercy could join together. And that way is the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 6, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Saying, I'm going to die. I'm going to give myself for the world. John 12, now my soul is troubled. This is after the, um, I believe this is the moment where <clears throat> Jesus has been betrayed and getting ready to be handed over to the authorities, and he says his soul's troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this very purpose, I have come to this hour. Jesus said, this is why I came to suffer at the hands of sinful men, so I could die for my enemies. What makes us the church is not that we were any better or any more deserving of God's mercy, but simply we are the church because we received it. We received it. We received his mercy. We embraced it. We believed. And that too, a gift of grace, even. Others reject the offer of life. They refuse to believe. The church escapes the wrath of God and escapes eternal punishment simply because it receives the offer. That's, what, that's by definition what it means to be a part of the church. This is what the Thessalonians did. They simply received the offer of life. And in so doing, they were no longer merely an ecclesia, a human assembly just getting together for whatever their business was. They were an assembly of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, you can become a part of that assembly too. Just receive the offer of eternal life. Believe upon the one who came and died for you, shed his blood for you, and you'll be in the ecclesia of God. That's my prayer for each person here today. So do that with me now. Let's turn to God in prayer. Lord, as we think about what it means to be the church, 
one of the distinguishing marks is grace. You have shown us grace. And what that means is we haven't earned anything. We haven't merited anything. We've not done anything to receive this gift. It's merely been given. And we do receive it by faith, just by simple trust, by yielding and saying, I believe we receive the gift. No greater gift could you give than that. And we embrace it. And as we embrace that gift, we know that all the other things to uh, come, that we are transformed, we are different, and we live a different way, a different life, and that often brings uh, persecution, it often brings challenge and trial. So we pray, not just for the gift of eternal life, but we pray that the word would continue its work in us to empower, to help, to strengthen, to do all the things that we read it is doing in your word for the Thessalonian church and for us. Thank you so very much for everything we have in Jesus. We have the treasure. If we lose everything else, we have the treasure. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.